I grew up here in Yakima, and, and we grew up on a dead-end street. This was a great little road that we grew up on. Uh, it was a dead-end, and it had a good-sized hill. So uh, there was a bunch of kids on our street that were my age. I had Robbie and, and Danny and Trevor and Stephen and Andrew and a bunch of girls. I don't remember their names, but I remember the boys. And we kind of owned this dead-end road where, like, we're riding our bikes down the road. The cars would get out of our way, so our bikes... You know, maybe that's because we didn't get out of the way and they had to make a choice. But, like, it was great. Like, we owned this road. Uh, And, and in fact, we used to play cops and robbers. You know, this was the day before Xboxes. So we actually had to go outside and use our imagination. And so we would go and play cops and robbers. And we'd run through everybody's front yards and backyards. And the neighbors were pretty cool with it. It was wonderful. And there was one neighbor that stood out. Uh, He was an old guy. So he was retired. And remember, we thought this guy was so cool because for his 70th birthday, he decided to go bungee jumping. And so he invited all the kids in. Hey, come watch this video. You can watch me go bungee jumping. And so uh, I know some of you are approaching that milestone. Give me a call. I'll get you in touch with, uh, with my people. Bungee jumping sounds good. Jim Herring, I could, I could picture you doing that. That would be wonderful. Uh, although Jim's got 15 years before he reaches that age milestone, though. Right, Jim? Uh, One of the things I remember about this uh, guy on our street is he was the one guy on the street that had a good-sized hill in his front yard. And so we kind of made an arrangement with him. We said, hey, what do we have to do to come and and sled on your hill? And he said, well, here's what you're going to do. First off, I'm going to teach you guys how to make some jumps on the hill. So he would put some snow in and pack it in. And then he said, watch this. And he took some water and put the water on that. So when you hit that jump, you flew. And he said, here's, here's the only thing I'm going to require you. He said, if you're going to come and sled on my hill, you have to build me a snowman. He said, I don't, my grandkids aren't here, so I want a couple snowmen in my front yard. So I remember this day, I remember it very clearly. Me and my buddies were out there. We're going to go sledding. And we're like, we should build a snowman. And one of the guys was like, I want to build the fattest snowman ever. And I'm like, no, nobody likes a fat, like a tall snowman. Like, let's build a tall snowman. And he's like, no, you know, the, the wider snowmen are better. And I'm like, no, the taller snowmen are better. And so we kind of got into this little tiff. And so we said, fine, you build your snowman and I'm going to build my snowman. So we're, we're building these competing snowmen, okay? I don't know if you guys can picture this. Uh, maybe you know me. I, I'm not very competitive. Uh, maybe you know me, have seen me not to be competitive at all. And so as we're building this snowman, I'm, I'm making comments about his snowman and they're making comments about my snowman and we're just kind of poking at each other's snowman until my buddy comes over and i'm working on this big tall snowman it's as big as i am and he he, he kind of tackles it and knocks it all over to the ground knocks the balls off and they're on the ground so what do i do i go over to his snowman i knock it over and then i stomp on it and i'm just it looks like a snowman cemetery in this guy's front yard and i and then he came out. He heard what was going on. And guess who got in trouble? It wasn't my friend who broke my snowman. It was me. Because I responded. And he got me in trouble. And he said, Kevin, you need to go home. And I'm like, that's not fair. That, like, he broke mine first. That's not, that's not right. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had your snowman knocked down? Not maybe, maybe you're weird like me. Maybe it is... Uh, literally, but how many of you figuratively have had someone do something to you? Something that you felt violated by? Something that you thought was not right? That was not fair? I mean, we've all been in that situation. We've all been in that spot where somebody does something to us and we feel that's not right. That's not that fair. 
And when that happens, there's something that flares up inside of us. There's these feelings. There's this, this, this sense and this belief of justice, right? Where somebody knocks my snowman over, the right thing, justice means I got to go and knock your snowman over and not just knock it over. I'm going to stomp it until it's all smashed up. Because we have a refusal to tolerate any sort of injustice towards us. I mean, do we not? This is something that is natural for us. We naturally, when we feel wronged, we want to seek revenge. We want to retaliate. Oh, you did this to me? I'm going to come back to you. You knock my snowman down, I'm going to knock your snowman down. And this is just something that's built inside of us where we have this sense of, 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 of revenge and retaliation. Now, let me ask you this, though. How many times have you sought revenge or retaliation that it actually brought peace at the end of it? When you start looking at the times that you retaliate, when you stomp their snowman, how many times has that brought peace to the situation? I'm going to guess the answer is zero. Because when we, when we seek revenge and retaliation, it doesn't bring peace. When we seek revenge and retaliation, that elevates or escalates the conflict until all the snowmen are knocked down, until it becomes a snowman boneyard because all the snowmen are knocked down. Because that's what happens when we seek revenge. This is something uh, that is a problem for every one of us in here, whether you are a, a teenager, uh, a male, a female, young or old. We have this tendency to be completely focused on ourselves, on our rights, on what we deserve. And when we are wronged, we are very good at playing the victim, are we not? We're very good at identifying ourselves. Hey, I was wronged here. I'm the victim and I have a right to speak for myself. I have a right to fight back. I have a right to whatever because I've been wronged because there's been this injustice. And this becomes the lens from which we view the world around us. Where we're looking at the world and we think the world revolves around me. And it doesn't matter what's said or done. Uh, it comes down to this idea that when I become wronged, I'm going to seek what's right for me. I'm going to see what benefits me. I'm going to find justice for me. Because we view ourselves like I'm the sun. And everybody else is the planets that revolve around me. Isn't that how we naturally live? Now, think about this scenario. This, this, I'm not speaking this from personal experience. I promise you that. But have you ever had one of those days with, with your spouse? Or maybe if you're a teenager, have you ever had one of those days with, with, with your parents? Where something happens very, very little. Something dumb happens. And you feel like maybe, maybe they said something that offended you or that hurt you or you felt was wrong. And, and because they did that, you, you're going to get back at them. And it goes on and on and on and on until the end of the day, the end of the day, you're sleeping on the couch. Your teenager has lost their cell phone for three and a half years and they're Googling how to get emancipated, right? Has that ever happened to anybody in this room where it just carries on? And at the end of the day, you're thinking, man, I don't even know what this started about. It was something dumb because this is what happens. When somebody wrongs us, we wrong them back. When somebody hits us, we hit a little bit harder. When somebody insults us, we insult back a little bit harder. And this is where Jesus is going to enter the conversation. In fact, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, the book of Matthew chapter 5. All the verses will be on the screen behind me. We also have an usher in the back. If you'd like a Bible in your hand, uh, just lift your hand up and we'll have an usher come and bring one of these to you. 
Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. This might be one of the toughest sections of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the hardest passages for us to, to look at. And uh, I tell you, one of the things I appreciate about the way we do church here at Restoration Church is uh, I'm really not that smart. I'm really not that interesting. So we open up the Bible and kind of work through a section of, of the Bible and say, God, would you teach us your word? And so we've had a chance to deal with some very interesting topics in the last several weeks. We've dealt with, with, with uh, anger and murder. Uh, we dealt with, with sex and lust. We dealt with marriage. We dealt with, with honesty and deceit. And uh, today we're going to deal with, with, with a conversation that, that's just going to be hard. Dealing with, with, with enemies and how we, how we love people and retaliation. In fact, if you were to say, well, what do you want me to walk away with today? Here's, here's a statement I want you to remember. Here's a statement I want you to walk out of. I want you to think about this week. And here, here's that statement. Is you can choose to be right or righteous, but you can't be both. You have a choice to be right or righteous, but you cannot be both of those things. That's what Jesus is going to teach us in this passage of Scripture. And I tell, you, I tell you why this is so hard for us to understand. Because, because this isn't about what other people do to you. I mean, absolutely. Sometimes people are a jerk. And sometimes people, they violate you, they hurt you, they treat you poorly. And, 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 but, but Jesus isn't going to deal with that. He's not going to say, hey, this is what happens to them. What he's going to deal with is he's going to deal with you and I. He's going to deal with our attitude. He's going to deal with our heart. He's going to deal with our ultimate desire when we have been wronged. And this is a question that you and I need to ask ourselves today. When we think about these scenarios of us being wronged, of us being violated, are you and I willing to die to ourselves in order for us to live the way that Christ calls us to? Are you and I willing to set aside our rights, to set aside our honor, to set aside our possessions, to set aside our privileges in order for us to start thinking and acting the way that God calls us to live. It's a question we all have to wrestle with. We have a choice to make. Will you choose to be right and vindicate yourself? Or will you choose to be righteous and live the way that God calls us to live? Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to actually start reading in verse 43. Before we jump in, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for uh, the privilege of being here today uh, with the church, God, we know the church is not just a building. We're thankful for this beautiful building to be in. But God, more so, we're thankful to be with your people. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand these words today, that you would challenge us, God, that you would comfort us, that God, ultimately, we'd find freedom through you. Lord, I pray that you would draw us deeper in love with you and uh, plead for your presence with us now, Jesus, in your holy and precious name, amen. So Jesus says in verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, or excuse me, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds about right. That sounds right to the way our world says to live. You're supposed to love the people who love you, and the people who don't love you, you you're not supposed to, you're supposed to hate them, right? In fact, there's a study that was done uh, a while ago. And do you know what the number one factor is that determines whether or not you like another person or not? When you think about all the people in the world, you think about meeting someone new at church, the number one factor that determines whether or not you would like them. Think about, well, maybe it's, you know, their, uh, their looks. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's um, uh, their socioeconomic status. Maybe it's their IQ, their personality type. Uh, maybe it's their, their fashion sense. Maybe it's their race. 
It's none of those things. In fact, the number one reason why you will like a person is because whether or not you feel that they like you first. That will determine whether or not you like somebody. If you meet someone and they're like, they, 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 you feel like they like you, you be, immediately begin to think, man, that guy's pretty smart. He's a wise guy. He can see how great I am. He likes me. I already like this guy. And on the flip side, when you meet somebody, and I don't care if this person's mother, Teresa, you meet somebody and you feel like they don't like you, you immediately have this, this disposition towards them. I don't really like them. You know, that Mother Teresa thing, I, I wasn't buying the act the whole time. Because you have this sense that they don't like you. And this is, this is what happens. And, and Jesus says, you've heard that it said, the world says, people who like you, you're supposed to like them back. You're supposed to love them. But people who are your enemies, who you don't like, man, you're supposed to hate those people. But here's what Jesus says in response to the way the world says. Verse 44, he says, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is where we have a choice to make. Are we going to choose to be right? Or are we going to choose to be righteous? Because the worldview says if somebody is an enemy to you, if somebody violates you, if somebody wrongs you, you have every right to seek revenge, to bring justice to the scenario, to defend your honor. That's normal. That's, that's natural. That's the world's way of viewing. But Jesus is saying something different. He's going to say, you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that has to be a choice. But we have to choose. We are wronged. Am I going to choose to be right or righteous? Now, we see this word enemies, and I think there's a couple ways to think about this idea of enemies. I want to maybe broaden our idea a little bit. When we think of an enemy, we might think of our enemy being uh, somebody who has wronged us. They've done something horrible to our family, and it's left an impact for a long time. That might be an enemy. You might think of an enemy being uh, like if you live next door to, um, uh, you know, somebody who likes America's team, the, 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 the Cowboys, and you like God's team, the Seahawks. Like they might be like a natural enemy to you. Uh, just saying there, I'm speaking truth, you know. Uh, they might be an, an enemy to you of sorts. But I think this idea of enemy goes a little bit further. Because how do you treat an enemy? If you have an enemy, how do you treat them? You want to hurt them. They've done something to you. They've offended you. They've made you suffer. And you want to make sure they feel the same that you feel. You want to make them suffer. You want to you hurt them. And so you're going to respond. It's kind of... Uh, Kind of another example of this. Have you ever taken candy from a toddler? You ever tried that? Like I love, like we've got five kids. I love our kids. But when they were toddlers, if you try and take a candy away from them, you know what they do? They get red in the face. Their hands start shaking and they go crazy. And you're like, where'd this come from? Like you're a diet. Diets don't do that. But at that moment that you take the candy away from them, you become what? An enemy. And they treat you like that because you have wronged them. You have taken what's so important to them. I want us to broaden this idea of enemy because an enemy doesn't just have to be uh, that long-term person who violated you a long time ago and you're going to hold it against them. An enemy can also be a short-term enemy where somebody violates you, somebody mistreats you, somebody does something to you. And in that moment, you've been there. Somebody does something to you and in that moment, you respond in ways that you don't normally respond. You do things that you wouldn't normally do, just like that toddler. We want to treat them like an enemy. 
We want to hurt them. We want them to suffer. We want them to know our wrath is coming because you've taken my candy from me. This is what it looks like to have a a short-term enemy. Now, I want to also be clear. When Jesus says, hey, I'm telling you to love your enemies. Listen, Jesus, let's not mix up love and like. Jesus isn't saying you have to like your enemies. He's not saying you have to have warm fuzzies about your enemies. To like someone is a uh, natural unconscious response. You, you have this naturally that happens within you. Hey, I like this guy. They're, they're a good person. They're nice to me. They're whatever else. Love, uh, this idea of love in, chapter, in verse 44 is an agape type of love. This is a love that is deliberate. This is a love that is, is a conscious decision. This is where DC Talk, the old Christian uh, band, says love is a verb. It is an action. You choose it. It's a decision to make. In fact, uh, a while ago, we had this neighbor that lived next door to us. Uh, this neighbor, uh, I'll tell you, uh, he had, he, what I remember about him is he had this crazy mustache. Okay? His mustache came down here, and then it grew over his mouth, where like his mouth was kind of like a walrus. You're like, is it there a mouth under there? Because all the hair is covering it. His mustache was longer than my goatee. Like, it was crazy. It was just so much hair on his face. This is a guy who wasn't always the nicest guy. Uh, you know, he, he wouldn't mow his yard. So uh, we had this little miniature dachshund, and we're like, where's the dog at? Oh, I think she's lost in the grass in his yard. Uh, and he sometimes would, would drink too much, and, and sometimes he would cause uh, have confrontations because he drank too much. And so he wasn't the easiest guy to like. But we lived next to him. And we had, we had a choice to make. What are we going to do with him? In fact, I remember he had dead animals all over the place. He had like, like, like deers, like deer bones, deer skulls. We're like, man, that's gross. Like, what's that in your yard for? Like, right next to our driveway. Can't you move that somewhere else? We looked like the weird family when you come to our house. And we had a choice to make. And we prayed and said, God, would you help us to love this guy? Would you help us to, to love him? And I'll tell you what, we, we decided that's what we're going to do. And I'll t- you know what? His grass, he didn't treat it any better. He still sometimes, sometimes created conflict with us. But we didn't change him. But you know who changed is we began to change when we decided to love him. We decided, hey, we're going to go bring him cookies for Christmas. We decided we're going to go wash his car. He has us come and wash his car. He gives us toilet paper. Remember that? He gave us toilet paper to wash his car. That's not what you used to wash a car. But, that, but we, we chose to love him. And so we served him. And we had this deliberate choice. And when we moved out of that house, man, I'll be honest, I miss living next to him. Because God did something in my heart. Well, I didn't change him, but God began to change me. There's an author by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who many of you may have heard of. And C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. He says, act as if you do. Because when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will soon come to love him. I think that's what God wants us to hear today. We don't have to like everybody. We don't have to like our enemy. But when we make a choice to love them, pretty soon your heart is going to follow that. It's just the way it works. So the question is, well, what does that look like? You're telling us we're supposed to love our enemy. What does it look like for us to love our enemy? Somebody who crosses you, somebody who violates you, somebody who hurts you. And I'm glad you asked that because we're going to look at that. Verse 38, verse 38 says, uh, uh, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
Again, Jesus is saying, this is what the world says. This is the way people tell you you're supposed to live. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is a quote from Exodus uh, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You'll see that several times throughout the Old Testament. Where those people in that day, the Israelites, they struggled with the same things we do. They struggle with retaliation. They, they struggle with, with revenge. In fact, when Moses wrote that law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, he wrote that to the Israelites who are coming on the heels of 400 years of being slaves. And if you imagine being a slave, uh, that was a thing where you received the, the harshest violence, the harshest consequence for a small amount of uh, insubordination. You do something wrong, those, the Egyptians are going to beat you for it. And now the Israelites are free, and they're saying, hey, we have this freedom. And you know what they begin to do? They begin to imitate their captors. And so if somebody crosses them, they go to the extreme in, in, in vengeance, in justice, in paying them back. And so Moses wrote this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as a, as a restriction as a way to, to uh, keep the violence from escalating, to prevent uh, unchecked retaliation and revenge that is naturally in our hearts. He wanted to make sure that the severity of the punishment matched the severity of the crime. But here's the problem. Is the Israelites began to take God's word and, and change it to fit the way they wanted it to be. Where instead of that law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, instead of it being a, a limitation, a restriction, they used it as permission. They used it as a way to, to permission. It was about them being right. It was about them being justified. It was about, hey, you cross me, I want to make sure you understand what that feels like. And so, I mean, let's just be honest. When somebody violates us, what do we want to do? When somebody hurts us, what do we want to do? You want to hurt them back. Isn't that the way it works? Somebody slaps you, watch, I'm going to slap you harder. In fact, there's a, a, a movie, Sandlot. You guys know that movie, Sandlot? I love that movie, kids' movie, uh, somewhat. And uh, in that movie, there's one of those scenes where the boys start to call each other names. And they have to one-up each other on the different names. One of them calls them a jerk, and then he calls them a moron. And then he responds and says, well, you're a scab eater. And he says, well, you eat dog doo-doo for breakfast. And he says, well, you, you bob for apples at the toilet. And then the worst, the worst insult they could give was, you play ball like a girl. That's the culmination. And we kind of laugh about that, but that's what we do. If somebody insults us, we got to top the insult. We got we to gotta show, we, we got to make, make them hurt a little bit more than we hurt. That's where somebody slaps you. What do you do? You, re, you slap a little bit harder. You respond a little bit worse because you want them to feel what you feel and even worse about it. We take justice into our own hands. Instead of, instead of justice being defined by God and his wrath being dissatisfied, our justice is based on, our, based on our own wrath being satisfied. And this is where Jesus begins to step in. And he's going to say, listen, if we are going to change the world, if we're going to have our lives changed, it has to stop being about being fair. And we have to start loving one another. We have to stop pursuing our rights and begin to pursue his righteousness. We have to stop stomping on each other's snowmen. This is the way the world lives. Evil for evil, wrongdoing for wrongdoing, violence for violence. That never changes anything. It continues to escalate and escalate and entrenches us deeper in, in, in sin and, and violence and just an ugly world. Fairness 
can never change our world. Only love can do that. Do you know that? Only love can change our world. And so Jesus is going to look and he's going to give us four examples of what it looks like for you and I to love our enemies. And these are principles that you can begin to embrace. They're not word for word, but they're things I want you to understand uh, of what does this principle look like. The first principle on, on how to love your enemies. Jesus says, I want you to choose not to retaliate. Verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if, some, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other cheek also. We've heard this. Turn the other cheek. In fact, when Jesus was writing this, this isn't just any slap. This was a slap on the right cheek. Let me tell you what that means. Typically, most people are right-handed. Anybody here left-handed? Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Raise your left hand. All right, most people are right-handed, right? And so if you slap someone on your right cheek, it's a backhanded slap. And that is a different slap than a, than, than a, than a forward slap. In fact, uh, in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that if you were slapped with a backhanded slap, that was twice as insulting as a normal slap. It is a way of saying, listen, you are inconsequential. You are a nothing to me. You are not valuable. You are not worth anything. So not only is it a a slap, it's an insult and adding insult to the injury. Now, let's be honest. Somebody slaps you, how are you going to respond? Your blood begins to boil up a little bit, right? You begin to think, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to the cleaners. Somebody slaps you. You say, hey, you see this guy right here? He's got a brother who lives right over here. and They're about to have a family reunion, right? You're going to be like, let's do this thing. Let's take this out back. Like, like, that's not okay. You can't treat me like that. I've got this justice and you just violated me. So let's take this thing out back. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says to be righteous means that we swallow our pride. That we give up our rights to retaliate. That we give up this idea of fairness, of trying to get even. It means that we carry this attitude, we've talked about this attitude before, where it's not about me. Where instead of being focused on myself, instead of playing the victim card, I begin to think about the other person's well-being above my own. I want to affect them. I want to extend love to them. Now, let me just clarify, because I know some of you are saying, well, that just means we all have to be pacifists. We never stand up for ourselves. That's not what the scripture is talking about. It's specifically saying when you are violated, when you are insulted, and you have that desire for revenge, that is when we need to be very cautious. Because that's not solving anything. Second example that Jesus gives us, verse 40 He says, if anybody would sue you and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. This means that we are to learn to sacrifice. In order to love our enemy, that means we sacrifice for other people. See, back in those days, they didn't have the big walk-in closets like you and I have. In fact, usually people in those days, they had two articles of clothing. They had uh, had a tunic, which was like a shirt. And they had a a cloak, which was like a coat, more, more so like a robe. But that was their two pieces of clothing. And the law protected your coat. Like if you had that robe, that coat, like you, if somebody was really greedy, they could sue you for the shirt off your back, but they couldn't take your robe because you needed your robe to sleep at night and that was kept you warm, that kept you alive. So the law said, hey, they can take your shirt, but they can't take your robe. You need to be able to have that. And what Jesus said 
is if somebody is so greedy that they sues you for the shirt on your back, that you need to go above and beyond, and you need to be willing to sacrifice even your coat. Try and satisfy. Give them everything you can. Now, I'll just be honest. I don't know if anybody's going to sue us for the shirt off our back. I I mean, I I don't know. Maybe you're in the situation that somebody is really angry at you, and they're trying to take the shirt off your back. I don't know how relevant that is for our day. But have you ever had somebody who was demanding more than you ever had, who was demanding more than you wanted to give? Think about, think about uh, your time, your attention, your assistance. Think about maybe that nagging spouse. Think about the demanding boss, that nitpicking parent, that teacher who just continues to demand more and more and more of you. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, I had this, this friend, a uh, nice guy, uh, but this friend of mine was, was always a guy who was going to take. He was taking, 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 taking. He'd always call it. He'd, he'd call the worst time. And he'd say, hey, hey, Kevin, you know, I'm, I'm, I have this doctor's appointment 10 minutes across town. I need you to come and pick me up and take me to my doctor's appointment. And I'm like, ten, ten, well, I got stuff to do, but I have no other way. And, and, and so I'd go and pick him up, and, and then I'd take him to his doctor's appointment. He said, hey, you need to wait for me until I get out. And so he'd go to his doctor's appointment and be there for an hour or whatever. And I'd be waiting in the parking lot and wait for him to get out. Finally gets out. And he's like, oh, and can we go to Walmart? And then I need to go and pay this bill. And I'd be running around. And I'm like, what about my time, dude? You're just going to go and, and take and take and take and ask and ask and ask? I, I mean, that doesn't, that's not fair. He just kept demanding more of my time. I think this idea that Jesus is saying is we should be willing to sacrifice. You know what? Sure. Anywhere else we need to go? I mean, I'm not, even gonna, I'm not gonna take your gas money. I'm just gonna do this because I want to extend love to you. There's a third example, verse 41. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The idea here is that in order to love our enemies, that we will, uh, we will go the extra mile, and not just anyway, we'll go the extra mile cheerfully, Right? See, back in those days, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they would carry these packs that were 85 or 90 pounds. And they'd be walking down the street. If they saw you walking down the street, they'd say, hey, hey, Rod, I'm going to have you carry my pack. And you've got to carry it for a mile. In fact, uh, the Romans were the first people that made mile markers. Did you know that? To help with this idea that I can ask anybody I want to carry my pack for one mile. Now, you and I all know, like there's two ways to do a job, right? Somebody says, hey, I need you to do me a favor. And there's, you know, one way to do it. You know, you, your wife says, hey, I need you to do the dishes. Your parent says, I need you to mow the lawn. There's a begrudging way to do that. And you can be bitter about it the whole entire time. And mouth things under your breath. I, 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 I'm not speaking from experience. Again, this is just hypothetical. You can have that scour on your face. Or you can do it cheerfully. And that's what Jesus is trying to address. That we would go above and beyond with a cheerful attitude. And that shows something to those people around us. The fourth example that Jesus gives us, he's going to say to give generously. Verse 42, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now I come to that point, I'm kind of like, how does that have to do with retaliation? Like now he's talking about somebody who wants to borrow money from you. And what does it have to do with, with, with retaliation and being attacked and, and choosing to be righteous and taking things from us? 
But Jesus wants, to, wants us to know that he cares about how we view our possessions. Because there's a way that, when, again, when we are self-focused, when we want to make it all about me and I'm the son and everybody else revolves around me, that we can look and we can do everything we can to hold on to what we have. Say, this is mine. It's mine. I earned it. I deserve it. You don't deserve any of this. I'm the one that earned it. It's all mine. I don't have to share. And listen, that is absolutely your right. That is, that is your right. You did earn it. And here's Jesus going to say, you have a choice to be right. You have a choice to be righteous. Because to be righteous means that you will give to those in need. Now, I know one of the things I think is very challenging about this. When Jesus says that, when he says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you notice the qualifiers that Jesus puts on that? There isn't any. He doesn't say you give to the righteous people. You give to the people who are genuine. You give to the people who deserve it. He doesn't qualify versus those who deserve and those who don't. He just says give to the deserving and undeserving alike. And that's scary. That is scary. Because honestly, we like to control the outcome of our generosity. We like to, to dictate where our generosity goes to make sure it's going to be used for things that I think are, are, are beneficial. Like, if I'm going to give you money, you can only use it for these things. You can't use it for those things because that would be a waste of my resources. And I'm not there just to give it away. But Jesus doesn't give us those qualifiers. He just says to give. Now, I'll just say, we have to have wisdom. You have to have wisdom in dealing with your resources. You can't give to every open hand. Yes, be discerning. But do you err on the side of generosity? Or do you err on the side of, well, I need to be cautious, and I need to uh, uh, be cautious with my resources instead of being giving. Because I think the idea that Jesus wants us to be is a people who err on the side of generosity. Who say, you know what? This person, they may abuse it, but I'm going to err on the side of generosity because this is what God calls me to be, is to be generous. And here's, here's something I want us to understand. Here's, here's why this is a big deal. Here's why it's a big deal that we love our enemies. That we don't retaliate. That we go the extra mile cheerfully. That we are willing to be generous. Because Jesus says there's a reward when we live that way. There's a reward when we love our enemies. Verse 44, he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? He says, listen, the world, they love people who love them. That's, that's the way the world operates. He's saying as Christians, we can't just do what they do. We've got to go above and beyond in love. And he said in verse 45, love your enemies so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. When we choose to love those people who violate us, who hurt us, maybe they're that long-term enemy, or maybe it's that short-term, you're in the fight with your spouse and she's hurting you and you want to retaliate. When we choose to love those people, verse 45 says we do that so that we may be sons of your Father in heaven. And he's, it's plural. You may be sons, not just you, but the other person as well. Don't miss that. 
Because not only is it possible for us to bring peace where there is strife, when we love our enemies, you and I might be the means that God uses to bring that other person under the saving grace that they would come to know the love and the forgiveness and the salvation through Jesus Christ. You hear what he said? So you may be sons. So you and that person who's wronged you, when you extend them love, you might be the very means that God uses to bring them into a relationship with him. Now, don't, don't mishear me. I, I didn't say be nice and everything's going to work out perfectly. That's not the way it works. Because loving, loving's hard. Loving, loving is messy. Loving, loving is, is, is risky. It comes with burdens. There's a chance you're going to get hurt. There's a chance you're going to get burned. In fact, I'll tell you, you love people, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get burned. But listen to the opportunity that God gives us. That the opportunity for reconciliation, the opportunity for peace, the opportunity to win someone to Christ is only there if we seek to love them and not pursue retaliation, not pursue revenge. If we choose to be right, that opportunity to win them to Christ is there when we love those people. So Jesus is saying we need to love like this. We need to bless our enemy. We need to pray for our enemy. We need to go the extra mile when it hurts, when we aren't going to gain anything. We're not to retaliate the way that we naturally want to respond. In fact, Jesus, when he says, when he says, hey, do not even the Gentiles, do not the world, they love people who love them and they hate the people who hate them. For us to love our enemies, it takes a supernatural work, does it not? It's something that we don't do naturally. This is something that God has to do in us. It is a supernatural thing. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, is there, any supernat- is there anything supernatural about the way that we love the people around us? Is there anything supernatural about the way that we love those around us? I'll be honest, because when we look at this issue of retaliation, when you look at the issue of revenge of enemies— and let's just be honest, like we want an enemy, don't we? We like having an enemy. Some of us, we need an enemy. Because when there's an enemy, then, then, then it keeps all the problems are on them. And it keeps the focus off of ourselves. If there's an enemy, then I don't have to deal with my junk. I don't have to acknowledge that I'm broken. Because if I have an enemy, then I can put all the trouble on them. And say, well, they're the ones that caused me to do this. They're the ones. And so we like having an enemy. Because if there's an enemy, then I have someone to blame. And I don't have to deal with my own junk. I don't have to deal with with my problems. I can concentrate on everything out there. And this is why I keep coming to the Sermon on the Mount. And the thing I keep finding in the Sermon on the Mount is it's really hard. It is really hard to, to fulfill the things that Jesus is calling us to live. Because he's taking it, he's taking it, uh, he's raising, raising the standard by which we live. He's saying it's not just about whether or not you murder somebody. It's about your anger and your heart that exposes us. He says it's not just whether or not you uh, commit adultery physically with another person. He says if you have lust in your heart, that's what makes you guilty before God. He says, he, he says it's not just if you uh, break your promises. It's whether you are a person of integrity, whether you are truthful. And all these things seem so much harder. They seem so, so difficult. But when we understand what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to lead us to freedom. 
He's trying to lead us to freedom. Because when you've got anger in your heart, when you've got lust in your heart, those are things that enslave us. Those are things that enslave us. When you've got that lust going on in your life, man, you want to hide that. And it becomes a burden that you are trying to protect. And what he's doing is he's calling us to freedom. He's saying there's a better way. There's a better way. He's saying, hey, you may not be murdering people. You may not not be running them over with your car. But if you've got anger in your heart, that's enslaving you. That is keeping you bogged down. That's not freedom. He's calling us to freedom. And when he's telling us to love our enemies, he's not doing this because it's so hard. He's doing it because he wants us to have freedom. He wants us to, to recognize what is at stake when we love our enemies instead of retaliating. Because when we have the enemy there, our focus is on the enemy. Our focus is on our rights. Our focus is on justice. And when we begin to love our enemies, guess what? The focus is no longer on them. And that's where freedom comes. That's where we begin to walk in freedom and saying, man, I don't carry that burden anymore. Because I've, it's cliche, but I've let go and let God. It's now God's. It's not about rules. It's not about trying to be right. It's about choosing to be righteous, choosing to be a lover and not a fighter, and finding the freedom that God wants us to have. Last verse, verse 48. Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Anybody in here perfect? No hands raised. One hand raised. One hand. One hand raised. Let's talk after service. I want to hear how this goes for you. Let me ask your wife. There we go. That's where. uh, uh, Is it possible for any of us to love perfectly? I would say hardly. I don't think we can. I don't think we do. But I'm not sure we're talking about our perfection here. I think Jesus is, is, is pointing to a different perfection. I think he's looking at his perfection. See, unlike you and I, Jesus was perfect. Jesus loved perfectly. In fact, on the, uh, as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, as the soldiers are, are getting ready to nail the hand, to nail those nails into his hands. Remember, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. These people are wronging him. They're violating him. And if he was concerned about him being right and his rights and his justice, man, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and, and blow up those soldiers. He had every right to do that, but he chose to be righteous. He chose to love his enemies, and he chose to pray and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He chose to love. He chose to endure that suffering on the cross so that you and I could find peace possible with God between him and us. This is what the gospel is. That we exchange our brokenness and our failures and our inability to love as we should for his perfection. Where we are known by his perfection instead of our brokenness. Where, where when we have a relationship with him, that he begins to redeem us. He begins to change us from the inside out. Where none of us are ever going to be perfect at this side of eternity. 
But we're on this process of becoming more like him. And he's changing us so we reflect him. Reflect his love. His, his love for his enemies. And it changes and it redeems the hard places of our heart. Absolutely. I don't think perfection is possible this side of eternity. But perfection is something that we can strive for. It's something that we can work towards. In fact, I would say, I mean, if we're here today and we're, and we're stuck on focusing on our rights, if we're stuck focusing on the injustices happening to us, of wanting to seek retaliation, of constantly having to seek revenge, of constantly having to prove ourselves, if we're stuck on being right, if you're always the victim, if you can't love the way that God calls you to love, my question for you is, do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? Are you actually being made new by him? Because it's not about the rules. It's not about trying to make religion a bunch of rules to follow. It's do you have a living relationship with Christ? And is he changing your heart from the inside out? Because if you have a relationship with him, no longer is it about you being right. It's about you being righteous. And you want to strive for, you want to pursue these things. So that's a question you need to ask yourself. When you look at your heart and you have the choice between being right and righteous, do you have a longing to live the way that God calls you to live? Do you have a longing to be righteous? Not that you're righteous all the time, because we're not. But is that the desire of your heart? Is to live the way that God calls you to live? Or are you stuck trying to be right? to justify yourself, to bring retaliation, to settle the score? That's a question we have to ask ourselves this week. And as you begin facing life this week, if you, you begin uh, having that disagreement with your spouse, as you begin having a disagreement with your sibling, as you begin whatever that looks like at work for you, that's a question you need to ask yourself time and time again this week. Do I want to be right? Or do, you want to be, do I want to be righteous? Because if we choose to be righteous, it's going to change the way that we respond.